Here's the 3-1 pitch, and it's swung on, fly ball, center field, Dawson going back onto the warning track, Dawson at the wall, that ball is a home run! That ball is out of here, and a home run for Rick Monday, and the Dodger bench clears to congratulate Rick Monday, who has hit a two-out home run here in the ninth inning, and it appeared that Andre Dawson had room as he went back to the fence, and he just flat ran out of room as the ball cleared the fence at about the 385 mark. Ah, one of the memorable moments from the 1981 baseball season. Rick Monday's home run in Game 5 of the National League Championship Series that ultimately sent the Dodgers to the World Series where they would beat the Yankees in six games. Um, 1981 was a tumultuous season, and my guest today, Jeff Katz, has written a terrific book that captures both the on-field drama and the player's strike that divided the season into two halves, making it a split season, hence the title of his book. There's just so much good stuff to talk about today. Let's get right to it. All right, joining me now on the Super 70s Hotline, the mayor of Cooperstown, New York, the author of Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball. Mr. Jeff Katz, how are you, sir? I'm great. Glad to talk to you this morning. Thanks so much. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Now, the, the first thing i got to ask you is uh, uh, about being the mayor of Cooperstown, uh, which has to be one of the coolest uh, offices that you can hold in America. I mean, that's better than the White House, right? <laughs> Um, I would say it's less stressful than the White House. Um, you know, what's interesting about it for me is as a kid growing up in New York City, uh, and then we lived in Chicago for a long time, you know, I've always been a big baseball fan. So Cooperstown is a place I always visited as a tourist, went to the Hall of Fame a ton of times before we moved here in 03. Um, it's absolutely true that being mayor of Cooperstown is awesome. Not just in terms of the people I get to meet, but in terms of like, you know, the positive feedback I get. You tell someone you're the Mary Cooper's hand, they immediately smile. Um, that being said, you know, there are real things to do. Um, it's a part-time, no-pay job, but I put a lot of effort into it. And, um, you know, there is kind of the overseeing and managing of a small village that, despite our fame, is very much like any small municipality that struggles with budget and costs and things like that so you know that's not a complaint that's just kind of further fleshing out the role but i would never deny that it's not without its credible merits so now here's the question that i have have you brainstormed is there any sort of law that you could spearhead as the as the mayor of cooperstown that would provide for your own induction into the hall of fame jeff no, but here's here's an interesting thing that I've heard, um, and I know some of this to be true. In the old days, I don't know when it stopped. The mayor used to welcome everyone to Cooperstown on induction weekend. Um, the story I had heard it sounds very true, based on the guy who was mayor, who I knew a little bit before he died. That you know, his job was to make a welcoming speech to people at induction. Crotchety dude. He stands up before the crowd and says, welcome, and sits down. <laughs> and the story I heard is like after that, the Hall of Fame said, you know what, maybe the mayor speaking at induction is not a great idea. So um, 
You know, I, I think I would enjoy that. You know, I've, I've done a lot of public speaking with Split Season. I did a lot of national media. I'm not sure if I wouldn't be so incredibly nervous to stand in front of 55 living Hall of Famers and 50,000 people to kind of riff for five minutes on Cooperstown. But uh, in the back of my mind, I always think I, I would welcome that invitation. That would be fun. Yeah, why not? I mean, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little bitter myself now, knowing that this guy just kind of ruined it for you. <laughs> Come on, man. Well, you know, there's a long history before I was here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's talk. Let's talk about the book because uh, this okay. bo- this book uh, came out last year. It's been really well received. Uh, what was the inspiration uh, to write a book about 1981 and the strike? For me, 1981 is like the main strike of my life. I was 18 going on 19 that summer, uh, you know, a devoted baseball fan. And, you know, to have baseball stop <laughs> in the middle of the season was was shocking. I mean, everyone at the time knew it was likely to happen, but it was still uh, amazing that it occurred. Um, interestingly enough, no one has ever written a book about that strike in about that year. There have been other books that have touched on it, but for such a major moment uh, in baseball history and, and sports history, it's the first midseason strike in sports history, um, I felt it was a subject that needed to be addressed. The other thing to me is, you know, I've always been a pro player guy, not through, <laughs> I guess I would argue, not through bias, but through merit. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> if mm-hmm. you look at owners versus players in the history of sports, uh, <laughs> people sympathetic with the owners are, you know, drive me crazy. People who say, like, the players are greedy, I'm on the owner's side. Like, the owners are some charitable institution. Um, and I always feel the players get, you know, a bad deal in these labor issues, uh, particularly back in 81, starting kind of in your neck of the woods in the 70s and a little before, the players were just kind of striving for the same rights we all have. You know, if you wanted to pick up and move from Chicago to L.A. to work, you could. Players couldn't. <laughs> and, you know, when you put it in terms of, you know, what normal people have uh, in their working life and the freedom they have, um, the players had a really righteous cause, and I wanted to explain that. Uh, that's that's so true. I don't think that particularly younger fans realize what it was like uh, back in the days of the reserve clause, pre-free agency. I was speaking with uh, right. I was speaking with Eric Soderholm uh, the other night, okay. and uh, uh, he was talking about he made uh, fourteen thousand uh, dollars one year, and then had a pretty solid season, and went in to see Calvin Griffith, the owner of the Minnesota Twins, and right. I think he was asking for twenty five thousand. He thought that about a ten thousand dollar raise would be would be fair, and uh, Mr. Griffith countered with, uh, you can make $14,000 again. <laughs> that sounds like a fine <laughs> idea. And uh, he said that actually uh, they had drawn up a list of about a dozen things that he had done wrong. He said he went in and they started, yeah, oh, yeah, they started right. detailing, you know, on May the 12th, you, you popped up with the bases loaded. <laughs> and, you know, it was just very specific. And, and you didn't, oh, and you didn't, you didn't have uh, any recourse really. You were, you, you were, stuck, right. you were stuck with what you got. So I, I absolutely agree with you that uh, by and large, the players have been on the right side of history in most of the, uh, these labor disputes absolutely and not only you know i mean it's uh 
it's meant to be a provocative tagline to say the strike that saved baseball because everybody thinks strikes destroy the game. Um, but in reality, you know, had the owners had their way of kind of killing free agency in its crib, um, and and going back to kind of the pre-free agency era where, you know, it was really a dynasty told history. You know, the Hall of Fame is moving away from that even in their displays. You know, it's not like, you know, the 1920s Yankees and the 1930s Cardinals, you know, whatever. Free, free agency, you know, the worst teams had virtually no chance to get better. And post-free agency, they did. Um, you know, the owners were looking to kill it, and had they succeeded, um, it would have hurt the game. I mean, if you look at the rest of the 1980s, there's more diversity in who wins divisions, who gets to the playoffs, who goes to the World Series, than in the previous decade. So, you know, nothing created fan interest more than free agency and the talking about who was on the market in the offseason and the possibility that lowly teams would have a shot at great players. So, you know, the players really helped the game, and nothing bears that out more than the fact that baseball is like a $9.5 billion industry now. Um, it did not hurt the game. And for all the waxing poetic about the 1950s and 60s Yankees and, and, and Mickey Mantle and all the great players that they had, uh, it, it, it's, it's always struck me, and of course it's before my, my time, but as a something of a student of baseball history, uh, the, the, the Kansas City A's basically functioned as the Yankees' quadruple-A <laughs> team. Uh, right. They just, and actually, I don't know if you know this, I wrote a book about that called The Kansas City A's in the Wrong Half of the Yankees. Um, and it came out in 07. Um, you know, the Yankees really could park players in Kansas City till the Yankees wanted them back. There's a lot of business behind-the-scenes stuff that explains why that relationship um, happened. But, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn and Long Island, and, you know, I was fed, and we're all fed to some degree, this nonsense about the golden era of baseball from late 40s to the early 60s, which was true if you lived in New York. <laughs> you know, if you were a Yankee fan or a Dodger fan or a, or a Giants fan, that that era was the worst era if you were in Philadelphia or Boston or Cincinnati. You know, those teams on the whole were terrible. They never had a chance. Pittsburgh, you know, the golden era for the Pirates was the 40s to the 50s. They were like the laughing stock. So, you know, how we see baseball history tends to be through the prism of, you know, New York sports writers on the whole. And when you really look, you know, deeper into it, it's kind of nonsense. So, so for those that don't know, and for those who are, that are maybe only, uh, are somewhat informed, uh, let everybody know the, what actually caused this strike. What was the issue? So what happened was free agency was granted at the end in December of 1975. So at the end of 76, that was the first class of free agents, Reggie Jackson, Don Gullett, all those guys. Um, salaries were increasing, you know, much to the owner's surprise and the player's surprise. <laughs> the amount of money being thrown around was way more than they thought would happen. Um, and the owners wanted to pull back on salaries. In a sense, they couldn't control themselves, so they wanted to negotiate away free agency. And how they wanted to do it was, in effect, make free agency a trade. So if a team lost a player in a free agent signing, the, the losing team would be able to pluck from the signing team 
a pretty quality major league player. Originally, the owner's first um, position was the signing team could freeze like 15 players on their major league roster. So, so if you were going to sign Dave Winfield after 1980, sure, most teams, Jerry Reinsdorf said this to me, you know, we didn't have 15 good players to lose in signing Carlton Fisk. But not every free agent was Fisk or Winfield. You know, they were kind of second-string catchers like Jim Essien and, you know, uh-huh. middle infielder utility guys like Bill Stein. No one's going to give up potentially their fourth starting pitcher to sign a backup catcher. Um, so the players fought. They also knew, you know, that unlike in any place else in the world, trickle-down economics works in baseball. The highest-paid guys affect the entire salary structure. So the owners were saying, look, you know, this only affects two, three, four free agents, but, you know, what Winfield made as the best outfielder trickled down to what other people made, trickled down to arbitration. Um, so the players fought to keep free agency. Um, what the owners wanted to do was refer to as direct compensation. You lose a free agent, you get a player. Um, it ended up getting settled where the players agreed to kind of like a pool where teams would throw players in the pool, and if you lost a, team, a player, a free agent, you could pick a player from the pool. Um, but that compensation issue is, you know, in a general sense, still affects the game today. When you look at how valued draft picks are, um, this qualifying offer that teams have kind of right of first refusal, you know, it has put... You know, it seems absurd to say when Justin Hayward can sign a, whatever, $20 million a year contract or, you know, Granke can sign $30 million a year that it adversely affects, you know, free agency. But there are still guys on the table because people are worried about what their compensation is. So the issue of compensation was at the center of 1981, and I actually think it's going to be somewhat in the center of this year's uh, negotiations. So the 81 season, for me, I, that was the summer I turned 10 years old, and as, as uh, you said, it's the first strike that interrupted a major professional sports season. So right. this was the first. And I remember at the time just... Uh, hey, baseball went away. <laughs> you know, it's one of right. those like, you yeah. know, will somebody think of the children? <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm this little kid, and I just remember, uh, I remember watching on, uh, WTBS, they showed, uh, Richmond Braves games. Uh, also. oh, yeah, right, right. And it was just like, well, you know, what, what happened here? You know, you lose two months out of the, out, out of the baseball season. And, uh, it was just such a strange thing. You know, we just expected that it was, you know, gosh darn it. It's a, it's a, it's just our, one of our fundamental rights as an American that we're going to have major league <laughs> baseball. And, and then you realize right. that there's this, that there's this business. Uh, side of it as well. Uh, you know, w- one of the things ab- about this, and, and it's, of course it's right there in the title of your book, Split Season, was this decision that the owners made to functionally break the year into two halves um, and do something that was, uh, if not unprecedented, uh, that ha- hadn't happened since the 19th century. Uh, how, right. how, how did that decision come about that they were going to uh, do something rather rather uh, uh, revolutionary, in a sense. Well, the, after the strike was settled, the, the union said to the owners, you figure out what you want to do. Um, you know, the union had to sign off on it, but the union wasn't involved in figuring out how to proceed with the season. Um, at 
owners' meetings to ratify the agreement and figure out what to do next, there were a million different plans. It seemed like every team owner had a different idea. Um, what they decided on was to split the season into two pieces. The the sense was that, you know, if you were the Mets or the Mariners or the Blue Jays and the season continued as it left off, you know, those terrible teams, and there were more than those three, why would fans come out? It's dead. You know, the season's over. So by starting at zero, um, it gave teams a chance to compete. Um and that actually kind of happened to a degree. I mean, by September, some really crappy teams like the Cubs, the Blue Jays, were printing playoff tickets because they were within striking distance of the second-half uh, division title. Um, so what the owners decided was if the same team won each half, they would face the team with the second-best record in the division. But without getting into kind of the weeds on it, it allowed for a situation where a team could conceivably throw a game at the end of the year to ensure the same team won both titles and get themselves into the division. Guys like Larusa and Herzog saw that early on. The other thing that was a problem with it, and the um, Dick Wagner, president of the Reds, saw it as plain as day. You know, in August, he said, "Look, the Reds finished a half a game out of the Dodgers in the first half." What if we finish a game, uh, half game out of the Astros in the second half? We'd have the best record in the division, and we wouldn't make the playoffs. And that's almost exactly what happened. The the Reds finished a game and a half behind the Astros. Reds had the best record in Major League Baseball and didn't make the playoffs. Um, so the owners really didn't kind of think it through that well. Uh, and to some degree, you know, the ratings in the extra level of playoffs as well as the World Series, even though the World Series was New York versus L.A., uh, there was a sense of illegitimacy to it all. Uh, in the National League East, the Cardinals had the best record in that division for the year and didn't make the playoffs either. So it, it, there was a sense that, you know, the best teams weren't represented in the fall. Uh, typical owner kind of half-cocked procedure. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing that, that to me that is really fascinating about it is that both of the traditional uh, divisional champs in the National League, they were both home watching on TV while uh, second and third place clubs were, were in the playoffs. Right. You know, what are the odds? That interesting. You have four playoff teams, and, and the t- teams with that would have won the divisions aren't among the four. So that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big goof, really. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and then, you know, the other thing that happened was, you know, pennant races take a long time to develop. And the season began, uh, like, the second week of August. So you only had really a month and a half um, of play, you know, till the end of September, beginning of October. Even though there were some kind of tight races at the end, like the American League, American League East, had they just resumed the season in its entirety, I think it was like five teams would have been within like two and a half games of each other with the legitimacy of the whole season record being part of that. Um, but, you know, the, the split season kind of cut both ways. You know, it allowed the Expos to make the playoffs. They would not have made the playoffs ever. You know, had they not benefited from the split season. So, you know, we look back a lot on those Expos teams as not having gone as far as they could and losing to the Dodgers 
in a crushing uh, ninth-inning home run by Rick Monday, but they wouldn't have made the playoffs at all in the course of the same season, uh, of a full season. So it, it played both ways a little bit. And, and the Kansas City Royals uh, made the playoffs with a losing record. Right. So the Royals are defending, you know, AL champs, having lost to the Phillies in the 80 World Series. They had a rough year, a lot of injuries. Um, they were sub-500 for the year, but they kind of squeaked out the second-half title. Uh, that was the year in the AL West that Billy Martin's A's, you know, it was Ricky Henderson's third year, I think. Um, the A's were really phenomenal year-round, uh, and the A's kind of took care of the Royals in short order in the first-round division series. So even though that was a big error, uh, it was addressed right away. Well, that was the, the, the glory days of, of Billy Ball when uh, Billy was, you know, everybody was throwing a complete game, and then Billy was knitting, you know, uh, jackets for himself out of people's elbow ligaments. <laughs> you know, it was, right. I mean, uh, I, I think it was, a, maybe it was the 80 team that they had, like, some just just unforsaken total of complete games, uh, you know, at that time. And, and, and of course, uh, Billy winds up in the uh, uh, ALCS, uh, you know, with a, with a chance to uh, do something that I'm sure he would have loved, which is knock off, uh, knock off George Steinbrenner and the Yankees. Yeah, it was a really great turn of events to have Martin, who had just been fired for, let me see, the second time. Uh, that was after he punched the marshmallow salesman at a bar. Um, comes back as uh, A's manager, rejuvenates that franchise, which by the late 70s, you know, was decimated and demoralized and no one came. And, you know, the three championships in a row were really a distant memory. And Martin comes in playing kind of an old-style, aggressive baseball. Uh, it certainly helps to have Ricky Henderson, who was already kind of the best player in baseball uh, in his third year. But you're right, Martin really kind of rode his starters really hard in 1980 and in 81. All four of those guys um, ended up having their careers destroyed. Although, interestingly enough, in all of the research I did, you know, none of them blame him. Really? None of them feel like he overworked them and destroyed their careers, which is really interesting um, because those were the best years of their careers. <laughs> yeah, so, oh yeah, they were. You know, without sure. those, maybe they're nothing. Yeah, the uh, so it's really interesting that you know that was just the ethic of pitchers at that time. When I when I talk to starting pitchers of that era and I talk about workload, you know, they're all just very matter of fact of like that. That was our job. Our job was and, to you know, take the ball. You know. And that, that's that's true and not true. You know, like when you look back, certainly by 1981, I mean, we weren't in the period of one inning closers, but we were well into the period of what we used to refer to as firemen because mm -hmm. they came in whenever, right? So Gossett would come in and pitch three innings. Fingers would pitch three innings, you know, sometimes more. So people were already working less than they had worked even 10 years, 12 years before. You know, the 300 inning guys were pretty much gone by 1981. And complete games, you know, complete games were already becoming an issue in the 80s. Um, but what's always a disconnect with a lot of, because I've seen, you can imagine, at the Hall of Fame, I've seen a lot of guys talk about their careers. They also don't realize, you know, they'll talk and say, you know, back in my day, I worked and I worked and I worked. 
And then I had three years of having a dead arm, and my team cut me without any <laughs> recourse. Like I remember Robin Roberts talking about it. And I'm like, okay. So the story I'm hearing is they so didn't care about your career <laughs> that once they just drained you dry, they cut you loose. Again, this is what the union fought to to correct. Um, but only in baseball do people think that the present-day athletes are not as good as the old athletes. It's That's a so very true. strange thing. That's so true. I mean, there's no other sport that people look. No one says, you know, LeBron is half the player of George Mikan. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's just That's absurd. a great point. And, That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, then you look at these horses. These guys, I mean, so I'm um, maybe eight years older than you. You know, in the 70s, in the 80s, if a team had a guy who threw over 90, a, a single guy, that was news. Yes. Now every team has guys who throw 95 to 100, and they have like seven of them. So the idea that somehow because someone works 200 innings, now he's not worthy like a guy who pitched 300 innings 60 years ago, it, it's just the way the game is played. It's not a reflection on the guys. That's that. That's well said. I I think it's fascinating. For some reason, we and it's great to obviously it's great to pay tribute to the great players throughout history. But I think doing it at the expense, in some ways, of the current athletes is I don't know. It it, it does a disservice to the game in a way because I mean George Mikan. It's like we all just intuitively look at George Mikan and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, he great for his time, but he would get his head handed to him today yeah exactly uh, but, exactly but these guys from the 20s and 30s were like ah you know that was that was a ball yeah. player right there <laughs> I, I wonder why and, that and is baseball, well baseball unlike every other sport you know baseball really does promote its history look I live in Cooperstown I'm the mayor of Cooperstown I'm well aware of that <laughs> and, and I certainly support that um, even before I was mayor of Cooperstown what you get with that is a glorification of the past at the expense of the present. That's not true in the other sports, right? So the NBA does a great job of kind of ignoring its past. So, you know, <laughs> depending on who you are, you know, there's nothing in the game before Kobe or there's nothing before Jordan or there's nothing before Magic and Bird. To me, growing up in New York in the 60s, it's all like Walt Frazier and stuff. But no one has a sense of what happened in the 50s or 60s. In baseball, the 20s are like yesterday. Um, and it's, an, it's part of the romance of the game, right? You know, you never kind of appreciate what you've got. You know, speaking of the 70s, like there was no generation of ball players that was hated more by the baseball press than the 70s ball players. Now, that's when I was a kid. I was reading the Sporting News and Baseball Digest. You know, all they cared about was money. They didn't travel on the same bus together. They took separate cabs. They had briefcases, all this nonsense. Well, now the 70s are the last golden era. And pretty soon we're going to hear that the 80s was the last great era. And then 15 years down the line, it's going to be, you know, like, how lucky were we in the 90s to see Bonds and A-Rod? And, you know, it, it, you, you, at the time, it's always perceived that the past was better. And this goes back in baseball stories to, like, the 1890s. I mean, you can read quotes from guys in the 1890s who said, you know, when I played in the 1870s, we really cared about the game. 
And, you know, these guys today are only in it for the money. And the owners in the 1890s were like, we're going out of business because of these outrageous player demands. You know, it's always been part of baseball that the past looks so much better than the present. You know, where do you stand in terms of uh, the the recent switch that that was made to uh, 10 years of eligibility rather than 15? You know, I, I mean, I tend to agree with, I think, what most of the conventional wisdom is, which is um, it was a way for the Hall to kind of get the steroid guys off uh-huh. the ballot quicker. I mean, the Hall says that's not the case. I think the Hall's position is that, you know, very few people got in between years 11 and 15. And that's I mean, most guys get it in those first 10 years. Um, you know, the, the Hall gets it mostly right, you know. I mean, and by mostly, I don't mean like 52%, you know. <laughs> Except for the guys we really harp on and the, and the steroid era guys. There are very few people in the Hall, not in the Hall of Fame, who should be. I mean, really, if you look at it. And it is a select group, you know, the... Football Hall of Fame just had their class. Who even knows uh, who half of these guys are? <laughs> I mean, I'm not a football fan like I'm a baseball fan, but I, I never even heard of Kevin Green, and he's a Hall of Famer. I don't know who he is. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, I mean, the Hall, you know, I think they made some great moves. I think the kind of culling of the voter base was a good move. Um, I think ultimately, you know, the, the Hall is a shrine, it's a museum, it's an educational facility, it's a mecca for baseball fans. But it has to be a living place. And, I mean, clearly we're not going to have no one in from the steroids era because we've had, this is our third great induction in a year, like really, you know, a good a good group. You know, it's two people, a couple of years ago it was six. Um, there's going to be strong representation from this era. But, you know, you need to make it such that, you know, people who visit the Hall of Fame see their heroes and not just their grandfather's heroes or their father's heroes. And the Hall just did like an incredible exhibit called A Whole New Ball Game, which covers baseball from 1970 to the present. Amazing exhibit. So great. But doesn't steer away from labor issues and PED issues. They don't take a position. They just say, this happened. And that that's an incredible move forward in kind of embracing all the talk of baseball. But, you know, to get back to your question, I'm always torn on how long it takes for someone to get in. Um, and um, Jay Jaffe, you know, every Jay, he yes. does the Jaws. Sure. Sorry, Jay was in town this week, and, and we were talking a lot. You know, the Hall of Fame kind of has room for both. You know, it, there's there's definitely room for an analytical approach, saying, you know, Tim Raines really was better than you thought, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. Um, and for various reasons of where he played or what his career arc was, people didn't see it. But there's also a place for guys who are not benefiting from the rise of sabermetrics. You know, I'm not a strong advocate for Jack Morris to be in the Hall of Fame, but I'm not against it because his his you know analytics don't line up. There is something to be said for a guy like him being in. And when you look at the history of who's in the Hall of Fame, you know it's it's a wide 
range of people. They're not all Hank Aaron and Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. You know? Yeah, it, it, but, it, it's just, the, for me, the passion that people have about the Hall of Fame, and I, and I certainly understand it, and, and I understand the passion that people have for certain players. I mean, I'm I'm a Tim Raines guy. I hope that ne- I think next year is his tenth year, so I, I hope that there's a push that gets him over the yeah. top. But but Jack Morris was such a lightning rod. Uh, right. And, and the thing that I that almost troubled me in a way was how many people were just angry at the idea of him making it. It, right, right. You know, people who just were, you know, just like the thought of Jack Morris going into the Hall of Fame just made them steam. And I'm kind of with you. Right. I, I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have voted for Jack Morris. But if Jack Morris made the Hall of Fame, I would stand up and applaud the guy and, and recognize him on an outstanding yeah. career. Absolutely. You know, and there's there's, there's to, to get back to split season, the labor for a second, because uh, you had mentioned like the business of baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 way I describe it often is, you know, if you believe that baseball is only the game on the field, you're too romantic, and if you believe it's only about the business, you're too cynical. It's it's in the middle somewhere, and that is true about how we view baseball with different categories. Right? It is yes a numbers game and the more we understand those numbers and who's valuable and who isn't that's meaningful but it's also about the people in the game and that's what draws us in you know the combination of those two so you know when i look at the 70s you know i think dave concepcion is a hall of famer he doesn't have the sabermetric numbers and the war value and all that stuff that puts him in but, you know, from 1971 or 2 to 1982, he was the marquee shortstop in the National League. That has meaning to me. You know, Steve Garvey has meaning. I mean, no one, very few were as influential and popular from 74 to 84 than Garvey. That has significance. His numbers don't light up in the way we look at the numbers now. But, you know, Garvey hit 300 every year when hitting 300 was valued. Could Garvey have hit 280 with, you know, taking more walks and hitting for power more? I bet he could have. You know, history's filled with guys who said, okay, you don't think my average is significant? I'll hit home runs instead. Ichiro showed that. Bob showed that. Cobb showed that. There's famous stories. So guys who are top-of-the-line hitters play the game the way the game is perceived. It's not like Ty, it's not like Babe Ruth was the strongest person in the history of baseball when he started hitting home runs. He just took a different approach. So you know, so the numbers and the aura are both of value. And you know, I don't want to see a swing to only a numerical value as way to decide it because there's a bit more to it than that. Well, I think that that's a great point. I I, I love the numbers. Uh, always have. I bought my first Bill James book, I think, when I was 14 years old and, you know, <laughs> abs- soaked that up like a sponge. But I think that if you if you focus entirely on the numbers, you, you do, you, you really just sort of uh, uh, lose what makes the game great, which is uh, right. which is that 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 the aspect that is the, the person, the personalities and, and, and things of that right. nature. I, speaking of personalities. Uh, it's right there in the title of your book. 1981 was the year of Fernando Mania. 
Um, right. You know, <laughs> and and it really was it really was mania. I mean, th- th- this there was something about this. I, I say this kid. I mean, I, have we ever seen a birth certificate, Jeff? I mean. <laughs> Do we, I don't think so. Do we? But I, I'm sure it's out there. He's never been under as much scrutiny as, let's say, Obama. <laughs> well, there was a. I love the description uh, that you had of Fernando in the book, where you said his, uh, you know, his hair was like a cross between '65 Beatles and uh, uh, Elvis Pompadour. Uh, yeah, know, and and he did. I mean, he really looked like probably like a good ten years older uh, than he yeah, was, than he was listed as and. You know, he had that, uh, you know, the great uh, screwball and the way that he would look up uh, at his hat brim uh, during the middle of his delivery. Right. There was there was just something about him that just that, that people really just took to. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of it is he was almost like the, the counter symbol of the labor issues, right? So here comes Fernando. I mean, if, if you were really a baseball fan going into 81 you knew you knew of him he had come up in the end of 1980 he pitched like a scoreless september and in the one game playoff between the dodgers and the astros in 1980 he pitched uh, i think three scoreless innings in relief i remember watching that in my dorm room uh, as a freshman uh so you kind of knew who he was he was in like you know a couple of the card sets of 81 he but no one expected him to kind of explode like he did. And back then, you know, it's almost hard to remember what a primitive world we lived in back then, where, you know, I was lucky enough to see the Mets and the, and the Yankees on TV. You were in Atlanta. You could see the Braves every day. But to see national games, you know, it was once a week, really. It was Saturday, NBC, and uh, I guess Monday night, ABC. So... It was only what you read and heard about. And, you know, as he built up shutout after shutout, you know, in the first half, you just kind of wanted to see this guy. You wanted to experience him. MLB started running commercials, but most people hadn't actually seen him. It wasn't, you know, the MLB network, ESPN, Facebook, Twitter, you know, blogosphere that we live in today where everyone's writing 100 articles a day and you can see clip after clip. So there was almost like a mystery to to his rollout. Um, so it was very exciting. Um, you know, he ended up being really the key sing- symbol of that year, and you know, rightfully so. In the year of Fernando, the Dodgers won the World Series. So it, it really has a storybook quality to it. Well, let's talk about that World Series. It was the culmination of uh, of a tumultuous season, and. Uh, you know, in what I think, uh, I'm sure the the the, the uh, ownership was quite happy to have uh, two marquee ball clubs in in the World Series as they're trying to recover from uh, the, the damage of the strike. Uh, you have Yankees uh, uh, who obviously had beaten the Dodgers in '77 and '78, and the Dodgers are getting their third third crack in five years uh, against the Yankees in the world in the World Series and fell fell down early in that series I believe uh, by, by losing the first two games right yeah so um, the Dodgers couldn't kind of get over the hump with that great team uh, and you know every time they played in the late 70s it was against the Yankees who were just that much better um, but people forget you know I think in the last 20 years, people think of Steinbrenner, George Steinbrenner, the Yankee owner, as kind of 
an elder statesman who presided over the Jeter era Yankees as kind of a benevolent authority figure, kind of a, a butt of jokes on Seinfeld. There's a warmer kind of feeling right. to Steinbrenner. The Larry, the, Larry, years, the Larry David Steinbrenner, right? Exactly. But the 1970s, 1980s George Steinbrenner was kind of an insane, sadistic tyrant. And the stuff he put the team through, you know, just the vilification of players, the vilification of managers. Uh, you know, the Yankees won as many pennants in that period as the Dodgers did, and the Dodgers didn't treat their people like crap. So, <laughs> you know, the people say, like, he did it because he knew how to win. Well, other teams won without being so nasty. Um, but the Dodgers really turned it around uh, and won the last four games. Uh, pivotal was Fernando. Um, after an incredible first half, he had a more inconsistent second half, but really had a great postseason. And in game three, he put in you know one of the gutsiest performances. He didn't really have it, but he threw like 130 pitches <laughs> and and stayed in, I think it was a complete game, if I recall, um, and the Dodgers won, and that really turned the series around. There was also some Steinbrenner real micromanaging. He had fired Gene Michael in September, uh, brought back Bob Lemon, who had replaced Martin in 78 and took the Yankees to the World Series then. But there was a lot of George kind of telling Lemon how to run the bullpen, how to take people out. He, uh, very famously, Lemon took Tommy John out for a pinch hitter in like the fourth inning of game six. And Tommy John, who certainly had a reputation of being a mild-mannered, good Christian guy, was spotted by the TV cameras just screaming in the, <laughs> in the dugout. Uh, but Steinbrenner had told Lemon, you know, get our starters out early and things like that. So George's micromanagement uh, really led to the decline of the Yankees in that series. And that was the the uh, that series was Reggie Swanson as a Yankee, and it was uh, and it was uh, near the beginning of I think that that was Winfield's first year in New York, correct? Right. Yeah, and Steinbrenner really, you know, he was so cruel to Jackson that year. You know, it, it's often hard to see Reggie Jackson as a sympathetic figure, <laughs> but he was a very sympathetic figure in '81, where Steinbrenner kind of brought him into the fold, asking for his advice on whether to sign Winfield or not. Um, Reggie, who was always motivated by a healthy amount of self-interest, um, you know, saw the Winfield signing as good for the team, but also good for Reggie, who was on the verge of being a free agent for the second time. But as soon as Steinbrenner signed Winfield, he told Jackson straight out, um, although he had led him to believe otherwise, but he told Reggie, you know, I'm not signing you to a long-term contract. And then he just continued to berate Jackson all year long. I mean, Reggie, who's got a frail psyche anyway, um, to publicly humiliate him all year long was really kind of horrific to watch. So to Jackson's credit, he, he kind of rebounded in the second half, had a good postseason, went on in 82 to have an incredible season for the Angels uh, and led them almost to the World Series. So Reggie got the, the final say on that, but George's treatment of him was really awful. And, and on the flip side of that, uh, I, you know, I remember as a kid, Dave, and I was a Yankee fan at the at the time, uh, Winfield had a really rough series. And it's and in some yeah. way, in some ways, the, never lived it down in a sense, at least while he was in New York. 
Yeah, so Winfield, he, he had a great season, um, really an MVP quality season. Um, he didn't win it, but uh, he had a great first year as the big contract guy. Um, but by the middle of kind of the Oakland series, he, he really got cold and never really recovered. So he was hitless in the World Series until game six, I think he got his first. Uh, no, it was in L.A., so maybe it was game five. He got his first hit, like a little blue. Um, so he really had a, a, a terrible series and, and was known for that. But the Mr. May name he got didn't spring from that. It really came out um, a couple of years later when Reggie was still um, playing for California. And Steinbrenner said, you know, <laughs> after tormenting Reggie in the last year, he's like, I wish we had Reggie back because Reggie always came in the clutch and now we have a Mr. May so by you know 83 or so Steinbrenner was at war with Winfield so um, but you know people incorrectly attribute that Mr. May tag to the 81 World Series um, but it certainly didn't help him and it took till what year was that was that 92 when he with won the World Series with Toronto with the um, so it, it, it was a tag that stayed with him um uh, you know, were, were there any surprises for you? I'm sure there were. I mean, what, what did you learn uh, as you went through the process of researching and writing this book that that maybe uh, maybe you weren't aware of when you began the project? You know, I, I came into the labor issue certainly on the player side. Um, it doesn't mean I wasn't open to the owner side. I spoke to some ownership, um, did a lot of research into the Kuhn, the Bowie Kuhn papers. He was the commissioner at the time. Uh, the Harry Dalton papers. Harry Dalton was general manager of the Brewers that year. Um, so when the owner side would say to me, or in looking at the um, old newspaper articles and books, you know, we were serious about negotiating. You know, the players charging us with unfair labor practices wasn't true. We just had a difference of opinion, and we're not trying to break the union. To actually do the research and read in these guys' private papers, notes from meetings where they basically said, we will not negotiate. You know, <laughs> we're <laughs> pretending that we're going to negotiate, but we really aren't. Or, you know, Bowie Kuhn kind of in handwritten notes on some of his documents has a line where he's like, break the union, you know, so to actually read kind of notes of people in the middle that they really were lying, it's not that I didn't think they were, but to know they were is really different. And as I did some research, I would share it with some of the guys like Dr. Sensei, who was on the Orioles that year, was a major uh, negotiator. Um, I would like scan documents and email them to Doug. I'm like, I know you've never seen this, but you know, I, I want you to know what was being said behind the scenes. Not that he didn't know, but when you actually see the proof of it, it's different. That's so that was kind yeah. of a shocking thing. To do. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's not amazing, but it's just uh, as you say, to actually see it right there in front of you, that had to be pretty crazy. Um, yeah, it really was. And the most interesting stuff was people's handwritten stuff. So in the Kuhn papers, you know, on his copy of the, you know, the uh, the basic agreements or things like that, you know, his notes, his take on it, you know, the owners really provoked that strike. 
the owners wanted the players to strike that year, but the owners had gotten strike insurance and had prepared to kind of, uh, you know, wear down the players. So when you read people's handwritten notes about how, you know, we're not going to negotiate with them, we're going to force them to strike and they're going to cave, it's, it's pretty startling. How much of a chance was there at any point that the that we could have lost the entire remainder of the season? I think there was a pretty good chance. Um, what was interesting is it was two months' worth of strike, but way more months of negotiation. The problem with ownership then, and it came back again in 94, and maybe it's still prevalent now, it seems more you know, professionally run, but the owners, you know, always underestimated the players' intelligence, resolve, understanding of the issues. So the owners always feel like, you know, they're going to miss a paycheck or two, and then they'll come crawling back. And it doesn't happen, and then the hardliners get harder. <laughs> the moderates want a way out, but they tend to be marginalized. Um, and it, particularly at that time, you know, owners were really you know, patriarchal in a, in a sense, right? You know, there was still a lot of family-owned teams that doesn't really happen now. Um, so they looked at the players as unworthy of their time. You know, who are you to even dare criticize how we run our business? So there was definitely talk. There was an interesting uh, story mid-strike where Marvin Miller said, you know, the owners have, in effect, canceled the season, so the owners have, in effect, broken every contract. So he said there's nothing that would preclude all of the players from starting their own league. So, you know, it was a negotiating stance, but it was an interesting point because the owners who thought they were so clever that they would like, we're canceling, you know, the season um, or, or thinking about that, you know, there, there was wording that basically said they were going to cancel the championship season. Um players saw that they could just they were all free agents then they had no tie so it was ugly for a while um and it actually took kind of some government pressure to change the direction of of how the negotiations went marvin miller by the way i mean you talk to any player from that era and marvin miller is is spoken of uh with so much reverence yeah, I mean, you know, the the thing about Miller that is interesting, and there's so many things about him, but when he came in to, uh, to be executive director of the Players Association in 1966, what he saw were guys who were, like, inc- incredibly powerless in their situation. I mean, it wasn't about salaries, per se, um, although that was part of it. It was just about having zero say in your livelihood to the point of like, you know, the owners wouldn't necessarily put doors on the bathroom stalls if they felt that wasn't a worthwhile expenditure. So, you know, when you look at the things Miller did, and he had a great phrase, he said, uh, when you when you enter an industry that's 100 years behind the times, it's not that hard to make quick strides. So, you know, the owners were not used to actual labor law, labor negotiations. So they were constantly running afoul of what the law said in terms of what people could ask for, what people could do in terms of a labor negotiation. So not only did he kind of 
in a sense, give the players self-worth, right? Saying, look, you can control your own destiny through how you, you know, deal in negotiations. Um, he also did a lot in terms of protecting players, you know, protecting players' careers, protecting players' health. Um, you know, there's a lot to credit him for. Uh, and, you know, from the ownership side, ownership always talks about, you know, oh, if it wasn't for an outside agitator like Miller, you know, our, our boys would get along with us. But, you know, that's not really true. They only get along because they had no power. Um, but Miller, everyone said, rather than being kind of like a hypnotist who just led these guys by the nose, which is what the owners said, he just was a good educator. And he would say, look, here's what the owners want. Here's what the law says. Here's what you guys can ask for. How do you want to do this? And in that sense, you know, he never dragged them along to his vision. He just educated them in a way that it all evolved in a very sensible way. The book is Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball. He's Jeff Katz, mayor of Cooperstown, New York. Jeff, Believe it or not, I've never been to Cooperstown. I've yet to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's one of the top items on my bucket list. Uh, oh, you got to come. When, when I'm there, I mean, can, can we do lunch? The, the the first round? Absolutely. First round of drinks are on me when I visit Cooperstown. Absolutely. Okay? All right, I got to tell you. There's good food. There's good drinks. <laughs> all right, that a, a, a good conversation. Uh, I got to tell all my followers, if you follow Super 70 Sports, and it's very likely that you do if you're listening to this, you got to get this <laughs> book. You got to get this book. It's going to be right in the wheelhouse of, uh, of the folks who follow uh, my Twitter. Uh, the book tells the story of what happened on the field, which was dramatic. It tells the story of what happened off the field, which was even more dramatic and just very well written. Jeff, can't thank you enough for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. All right. Take care, my friend. All right. Talk to you soon. Ah, what a great discussion of baseball in 1981. You better believe when I visit Cooperstown, I'm going to be sipping on a margarita and chatting it up about baseball with Jeff. Go buy Jeff's book, Thank Me Later. It belongs on any serious fan's bookshelf. Next week, my guest is former NBA All-Star Kermit Washington, who will discuss life in the NBA in the 1970s and early 80s, including what it was like playing with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and how his infamous punch of Rudy Tomjanovich affected his career. Kermit will also tell us who he thinks is going to win in this year's NBA playoffs, so you won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll catch you next week on the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Blue Monday, I'm a Monday.